another episode of the Fly and the Wall Show. Man, I'm so happy you made it this far. I would never let fear hold me back ever again. And I got a special guest. This is about to be an amazing conversation. I got the legendary power move maker and shaker. This is about to be an amazing conversation, man. I swear I hear it all like a fly on the wall. But truly, I'm not small. I'm the flyest of all. And this a meeting ground for the blessing profound. The hottest talk show around. You better turn up your sound. Because if you want to be great, you got to learn from the greats. Analyze what they say and avoid their mistakes. If you got what it takes, just give me a call. I'm here to hear it all. It's the Fly on the Wall show. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, J.R. Lee, and I'm back for another special, exclusive episode of Fly on the Wall show. And today... I got a special guest. I got an exclusive guest. It's going to be a money-making conversation. I'm joined by the legendary Rakim Sabri. And Rakim, for the people who may not know who you are, can you tell us a little about yourself, sir, and what it is that you do? Sure. My name is Rakim Sabri. I'm a financial coach, author, and speaker. Uh, My message is empowerment. And so through the different mediums that I communicate, whether it's written, oral, or or what have you, um, I'm talking about financial empowerment particularly for Black people, and uh, how to overcome financial trauma. Absolutely, absolutely. Man, that's powerful. So you're a financial empowerment coach. We're going to dive in a little bit into how you got there, man. So let's talk about, like, the beginning of Rakim. Where are you from, sir? From Mount Vernon, New York. Oh, really? Sir. Oh, that's what's up, man. My girl, she's from the Bronx, and so I think they have they okay. have. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's what's up. That's what's up. That's what's up, man. That's what's up. Yes, sir. And so how was it how was it for you growing up in Mount Vernon? Uh, it, it wasn't bad. Um, I will say that my parents separated probably around the time I was uh, 12 or during the during the interval between 12 and 15. And that separation had an impact on me um, in a variety of ways, as I think yeah. most of would, but particularly financially, because I became aware of the household finances. My mom had Section 8. We had food stamps. Um, and there were days where, you know, it was kind of difficult financially for us to um, to just kind of navigate the landscape. So um, that experience, as I talk about financial trauma, had a profound influence and impact on um, my views of money, how I, what I believed was possible for me with money. Um, I won't say necessarily that impact what I felt I deserved around money, but there was definitely some some fog there in, in determining how to accomplish uh, large financial goals. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, separation between, you know, two parents can be definitely difficult on the child. And so you said that you kind of were more aware of money at a young age. And so at what age do you think that you kind of was aware of the fact that, yo, this money thing, we're on Section 8, we're on food stamps. Like, at what age do you think that awareness started to sprout? Uh, definitely within that that range is 12 to 15, probably closer to 15, though. Um, and that's just because I was more active in helping to manage the um, household income. So I would help, you know, take cash over to property management. I would carry the food stamps card. I would do a lot of shopping. Um, I would do laundry, different things like that. And so, um, you know, it, it made a lot of things obvious, right? If if I'm doing laundry and we don't have the coins to to feed the machine, then you know that that's a challenge financially. If I have the food stamp card and I'm like, well, we only have fifty dollars left, so we have to budget that. That's a challenge. Yes, certainly, yes. one of the um the bigger the bigger I guess pieces of awareness is 
Um, I would come home from school some days and I would see like an official notice on the door and yeah. um, you know, snatch that off the door. And um, that was certainly nobody else sees. Right, right. <laughs> That's my get it. Absolutely, Matt. And so that can definitely be hard at a young age. And so, you know, we talk about trauma. I know you talk about financial trauma. Um, trauma, I feel like all trauma starts from a young age. And so in your own words, like what is financial trauma? Yeah, so uh, financial trauma is any experience either had or observed that impacts the way that you believe about money, the way that you interact with money, um, and, and ultimately uh, what you believe is possible for you relating to money. Absolutely. And, you know, where I come from, you know, I come from an immigrant household, you know, Jamaican parents. And so it's a lot of the conversation, the conversation about money, it wasn't a positive one, right? We didn't talk about credit. We didn't talk about credit cards. Oh, don't get a credit card. We didn't talk about those things. We didn't talk about, you know, ways to actually increase, you know, money, money. The conversation was pretty much scarcity and lack. And so in your opinion, how did how does someone change that money mindset and shift to a, a abundance mindset when all they know is like scarcity or lack from growing up? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I've I've been getting asked this a lot and I've kind of synthesized it down to the three E's. Yes. Uh exposure, education, and uh execution. Yes, uh, so you know, exposure is understanding that, you know, what's possible, right? Seeing it, being around it, interacting with it. Um if everybody around you is living in an apartment <clears throat> and you don't know that home ownership is possible, then maybe you'll never aspire to be a homeowner. But if you know somebody who is a homeowner and you can go to their house and you can see them, you know, doing homeowner duties, whether that's like repairing a wall or, or something like that, then you can say, hey, that's something that I want. Um, education is figuring out the path to accomplishing that thing, right? So um, for me, once I realized that home ownership was a possible reality um, and a possible reality, you know, that was within my control, uh, give or take five years, uh, I was like, okay, what do I need to do to get to that point? What do I need to learn? Where does my credit need to go? How much money do I need to put away? Who do I need to talk to, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last piece, which I think is the most important piece, is the execution. Um, and that's hard. It's hard for a lot of people because that's where you really kind of have the, the, the stare down with your trauma. Yes. Um, so when I was going through the process of purchasing a home, I had the education, I had the exposure, I had the desire. But just up at the end of that, just before the execution, I started to think about all of the what ifs. What if... I can't afford to pay the mortgage. What if something happens to the roof? What if something happens to the furnace? How am I going to pay for all of these things? And so in those moments, I could have decided, well, I don't want to take on this risk because who's going to bail me out yes, if sir. something happens, right? Um, or I could have said, you know what? I'm going to move forward and I'm going to create a plan that will accommodate those you know, instances occurring if those instances do occur. And so I don't want to make it, you know, sound so simple that it, um, it, 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 it uh, what's, what's the word I want to use? Kind of like offends people, right? Because a yeah, lot yeah. of the reality is that it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, it's not just 
not so easy to build your credit if you don't know where to mm-hmm. start. It's not so easy to save money for a down payment. It's not so easy to allocate a portion of your um, income towards covering, you know, what's the mortgage. Um, and so, you know, those are things that uh, mindset things, if you will, that need to be worked on. And that's a lot of the work that I do as a coach, helping people to kind of overcome what are those mental rules and acknowledging history, culture, and, and certainly that psychological trauma and saying, okay, this is where it is. How we move past that? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and speaking about you know overcoming that trauma and you know your process. Now, is that like a short term process? Like, it's not like you said. It's not a simple thing. So I'm pretty sure it's a continuous thing. You have to continuously you know remove those paradigms and continuously you know do the mind work. Like, is it like a in your own words? Is it something that you could? Is this one and done, or is it, is it a process that is something that's over and over again that you have to continuously do these things, pre-program your mind? Yeah, so I think uh, to start, it's the time frame is going to vary depending on the person, right? It depends on the amount of trauma that you have, depends on what method you're using to address that trauma. But, um, you know, I think kind of what you're asking is, do you arrive? And then you're there, right? And I think most people's view of success is that it's like turning a light switch on, right? You figure out what the formula is, you turn a light switch on, and then their success and that's an inaccurate view of what success is um you know success is an everyday decision to be successful and so uh, most people are fearful of success believe it or not because they're never taught how to be successful Mm -hmm. um and so you know to your point the time that it takes to get to a place where i guess you can consider yourself successful and then uh, will will vary from person to person but then once you get there all of that is tested every single day you have to make a conscious decision to always improve to always kind of re-fortify because think about it if i um so i bought my home when i was 26 years old up until that thank you up until that point let's say that my trauma impacted my decision to purchase a home um, and that trauma extended into, you know, the money that I made, extended into, you know, what my credit looked like, extended, whatever. That's 26 years of trauma to undo. Mm. That doesn't just get undone, you know, because I read a book or two books or three books. It doesn't get undone because I've been focused for six months or a year or two. That's trauma that that's your whole life um, or a majority of your life. And so I think when when people look at success or um, this concept of abundance, or this concept of discipline, uh, they're often looking at the end result of somebody else's process. And so what they need to do, or what, what most people should do, is internalize their own process, get to a place where they're proud of themselves, whether that's creating some kind of micro goal, or a series of micro goals and accomplishing them, checking them off the box, and then constantly feeding your mind positivity, reinforcing it by, you know, again, going back to that exposure, surrounding yourself with people who are going to continue to uplift you um, and pour into you. Education, continuing to learn about the different ways to, you know, navigate the spaces that you're navigating and then execute. Always, always, always execute. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that information, Rakim. And, you know, just a while ago, you mentioned, you know, the importance of surrounding yourself around people 
right? And surrounding yourself around people. You talked about, you know, earlier you spoke about, you know, if you haven't seen someone with a, so you haven't seen a homeowner, all you did was live in an apartment, you probably wouldn't know homeownership is impossible. And so for you, how important has, you know, environment been for you and your overall success or your overall journey? Uh, if I had to give a percentage amount, I would say 90 to maybe 98% certainly has to do with environment. Um, so back in 2010, uh, that's when I left New York. I moved down to Texas for eight months and huge culture shock, right? Uh, changing, mm-hmm. changing, you know, the way that people interacted with you, mm-hmm. learning to just stop being on guard all the time. Cause New Yorkers, you know, we we're about very protective. Yeah. We're very not, hard. <laughs> not, we're not stopping to talk. We're not, you know, asking you about your day and interested in your life story. And so uh, when I got to Texas, there was a big change. People will compliment you. People talk to you people wanted to know about you your past question, question. You were, you, were you receptive to those compliments uh i was receptive from the perspective of being polite yeah. um but i was i was cautious i'll tell yeah. a quick story i um i went into a store it was a retail store i don't remember what store it was yeah. um and like one of those outside kind of strip malls and i had a watch on and so i go up to the register to um to pay for whatever i think it was clothes that i was buying pay for whatever it is and the guy behind the counter goes that's a really nice watch and my first reaction was kind of like he wants it yeah (laughs) he wants it like because when i was growing up in new york if somebody and this happened to me um several times if somebody uh, identifies something um particularly something of value that you have on your person and they compliment you on it that means it's and they're they're gonna follow up that compliment by telling you that <laughs> give me give me that thing right yeah sure so um so that was a trauma right it was a trauma response that guy made a you know completely innocent compliment of the watch that I was wearing and I'm like hold on Rockin like you're in a retail store you're paying for what it is that you know you're getting ready to buy this guy is not getting ready to jump over the register to take your watch from you. Yeah. Um and 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 true, even if he did like this guy was like some like skinny frail guy like, he was not gonna take the watch from him. <laughs> but um but it just kind of speaks to the the power of of trauma in your mind and how that impacts your perception of the world around you. So um again, answer your question. Yes, I was from a position of being polite, receptive to compliments, but it was an unlearned process involved in you know just kind of understanding that I'm not operating out of survival like not everybody who um makes a comment or gives me a compliment is looking to to you know attack me or get something from me absolutely absolutely and by the way your name is Rakim that's a powerful name what's the meaning of Rakim by the way if you know so I'll, <laughs> so I was named uh, after the rapper Rakim and um I've heard I've heard different things about the origin of the name uh so I'll, I'll kind of go down a rundown. Rakim, the rapper, to my understanding, uh, chose that name for himself because it was a combination of the sun god Ra uh, from Egypt and the original name for Egypt, which was Kemet. So uh, Ra Kim was god of the um, the burnt face people, basically like the, the dark people of Kemet, um, because the true uh, Egyptians were actually dark. Um, and now we, you know, these, these days, the, the Arab, um, population in that area is a lot more light skinned, but 
Um, that was my understanding, but also um, one of the attributes of Ra, the God, was a writer. That was one of the attributes. And so it's kind of ironic that um, I've become a writer <laughs> in my own right. Uh, but I, when I was growing up, my dad told me that my name meant writer. And Absolutely. so uh, uh, that's what I stuck with. But also, I'll throw this up there. Um, the way that I spell my name, including the H, uh, different from the rapper Rakim that is without the H. Uh, many people in the Arab community um, reading my name would read it as Arabic. Uh, Rahim, which is absent of the K. And Rahim or uh, Al-Rahim is an attribute of God. Uh, Muslim faith that means um, gracious, most gracious. So, um, I mean, like you said, it's some power behind the name. Um, I'm sorry, either it's gracious or merciful. Rahim is, is either gracious or merciful. Another meaning, depending on how you're using it. No, it, it's merciful. It's merciful. I'm sorry. Merciful. Rahim is merciful. <laughs> now, the reason why I, I'm sorry. So yeah, so it's a combination, I think, of um, incorporating that attribute of God and Islam and yeah. a combination of how Ra Kim, the rapper, spoke to the attribute of Ra and uh, Kemet, the original name for Egypt. Absolutely. Now that's powerful. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's very divine. And the reason why I ask, because, you know, I'm a writer myself and I like, I just like knowing the meaning of words and names and symbols and all these different things, you know. And speaking about, you know, raw kind of relating to being a writer, you know, um, how, like, when did you find out your first, I know your dad, you know, told you about the writer. When did you first find out that, you know, writing was your thing that, like, how did you develop your connection to writing? Uh, it was early. Um, I would say probably in the third or fourth grade, I was given an assignment. Um, it was a writing assignment. And um, I don't remember what it was, maybe like a paragraph or a poem or some essay or something. And the teacher remarked on it to my parents, like how great it was. And, right. you know, my parents were also pretty impressed. Yeah. And um, I just had always been a strong writer. I think, you know, kind of the aspects that make somebody a good writer is their ability to think critically and communicate those thoughts and written format so um I was also a big reader and that helped kind of influence my writing style and my writing ability as I would read more and more sophisticated texts particularly as a young person uh, I would try to adopt some of that style in my own writing and even in the way that I spoke uh so I actually hated language arts um classes when I was in school like it was the bane of my existence my least favorite class of, of all of them but I always scored high yeah. um it came to like analyzing prose and and uh you know critical writing critical reading of uh, the SATs my writing score was um I think in the state probably in the you know highest percentile so um I've always been a writer uh at heart but within the last, I want to say five years, definitely the last three, I've been really honing in on that skill set to uh, build a brand personally. Um, I wrote two books. I'm in the process of writing a third um, to share thought leadership. So I'm in a lot of different publications, Entrepreneur, Business Insider, The Grio, 
um, Parents Magazine, just a ton of them. And um, I've gotten a lot of recognition because of that. Uh, you been, John, you definitely been snapping. Congratulations. I also seen it, you know, became verified recently on Twitter. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And that, that came, I mean, that that's there's a direct correlation between that. Uh, right. I recommend in, in, in my writing. So um, definitely a strong suit of mine. Absolutely. Now, so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, um, let's talk about, you know, your two books. What inspired you to actually take your knowledge and put it down into written format, you know, and provide that value to the world? So the first book, um, I did not have intentions on sharing with the world. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> I, um, I was experiencing a really rough time in my life, um, definitely mentally, talk about trauma. Um, this is, you know, one of the bigger traumas that I've had was uh, I was experiencing depression. And um, during that period of time, I became so unfamiliar with myself, like inside of my head, I felt like I was a stranger. And um, it's terrible, terrible experience to have. I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I am somebody who's very strategic. I'm somebody who's very intentional. And so I couldn't understand how, how that was happening in my mind and I couldn't understand how to fix it. So that's where there was the most, um, I guess of a struggle. Yeah. And, but I was high functioning, very high functioning, like get up, go to work, uh, go through the whole day completely fine and then come home. And then I would just kind of like retreat into myself, like get in the bed and- Suffering the silence type stuff. And um, I noticed it started to become a problem for me when I stopped doing the things that I enjoyed doing. Um, and at that particular point in time, it was dancing. I love dancing. I would go out every weekend, every Friday, every Saturday, sometimes Sundays, and I would go dance to Latin music. That was my thing. Yeah. And uh, I had a, I have a Dominican homeboy who would call me. He's like, yo, we out? And I'm like, we out. And then I would start, I would get showered and I will start getting dressed. And I'll probably get as far as like putting on my pants and then the desire to leave and go out would just drain from my body. Mm-hmm. And um, I would get in the bed, I'll turn off the light, I'll turn off my phone yeah. or put my phone on silent. And then I would just like go to sleep and I would see him like calling, 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 miss calling. I'm like, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I not even picking up the phone? Mm-hmm. And um Another major, uh, I guess, turning point for me in that experience was when um, I had a, I just had a bad day. I had a bad day at work. I was going to school at the same time. So I went to school. I failed a test, um, came out of the class, got in my car. I just remember sitting there. And I'm like, in my head, I'm myself, like, turn on the car, Rocky. I'm turn on the car, go home, go home. And I'm just sitting there, like, not moving. And uh, I made a couple of phone calls to people uh, that were close to me. And everybody that I called didn't pick up. And I'm like, nobody wants to talk to me right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're experiencing something like that, like you create stories in your mind about what is real. And I felt like everybody was just intentionally ignoring me. Like it didn't occur to me. I mean, I know logically it made sense. That could be busy, but it didn't occur to me that they could be busy. It just occurred to me in that moment that nobody wanted to talk to me. No one was there. No one was there for you in that sense. I just burst out crying. I cried the whole way home. I remember parking my car. I cried again, sitting in the parking lot. I got myself together. I walked in the house. 
Um, I lived with my mom at the time. And as soon as I walked in the house, my mom looked at me and she's like, what's wrong? And I just started crying again. And I was just like, I feel like a crazy person. So um, the shorter the long, I know I'm, I'm taking a long route to answer your question. Nah, but. Man, it's, 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 <laughs> people need to hear this though. People need to hear this because like I said, a lot of people, I understand depression very well, my brother. So a lot of people, they experience this and they probably don't know it's depression. They probably don't know that they're currently going through a moment like this. They don't even know how to overcome it. So you sharing right. this story is powerful. Thank you. So uh, my manager at the time, she uh, was experiencing anxiety. I think that she had gone through her own bouts with depression. And she shared with me that uh, her either therapist or whoever told her that she needed to write. And she's like, Rakim, maybe you should do the same thing. Just start writing, you know, tell your story. You have a story to tell, you know, and people will, will value that. And so I did. I started writing. Um, I was on some uh, website that gave you like cheap anonymous plane tickets to places. So like, uh, I think it was like $500 I paid and it was 14 days. You go to um, Morocco and you go to Barcelona. That's why. $500? Yeah, it was five round trip, $500. Uh, but they didn't tell you what the airline was. Yeah, okay. Go on a specific day, and it was just like it was a lot unknown. Yeah, but I was just like, "Well, this is this, this, this is you know this is an opportunity." Like I'm just falling, and I'm just like, "This is an opportunity. It makes sense." It was around the time period was around my birthday, yeah. and um, I booked it. I booked it in that moment. I took seven days um, and went to Barcelona, Spain, which was some place that I had always wanted to go. And then after those seven days, on the on the seventh day, I believe, or yeah, on the seventh day, I had my birthday. And then on day eight through 14, I was in Casablanca, Morocco. And my intention on that trip was to solely like get in touch with me and write. And that's what I did. I came home. I started taking what I wrote on the paper and started to transpose it into text and a Word document. And I really, I just, I was going to print the book for the sake of just having it. But as I was reading through it and proofing it and, you know, going through that whole thing, I was like, people can learn from this. So I went back and then I started to incorporate lessons of those experiences that other people can learn from. And so the book is called Mentorship, the playbook. And basically each chapter goes through um, experiences that I've had growing up. Um, and redefining how most people would view mentorship. So most people view mentors as somebody who is significantly older than you and significantly more experienced. And I redefine mentorship in that book as being anybody that you allow to have any influence over you. So that could be your brother, that could be your best friend, that could be, you know, anybody of any age. And um, at the end of each chapter, I have a call to action that speaks to both mentors and mentees around how to improve the relationship that they would have with each other. So if you're a mentor, this is how you become a better mentor. If you're a mentee, this is how you become a better mentee. Wow. And, you know, well, thank you so much for sharing that, man. And, you know, what's powerful about that story is first, you know, the things, some of the steps that you took, right? First, you, you asked for, you acknowledged what you were going through. Then you asked for help. You asked someone that maybe was going through a similar situation and she recommends something for you, which was therapeutic, which was writing, which is actually something that you clearly was born to do, right? And then after that, 
<laughs> you just took advantage of any opportunity. You had an opportunity to, t- to get to travel, right? So you took advantage of that opportunity by changing your environment. Clearly, whatever you was going through, where the space that you were in right now temporarily, that was in the, that you couldn't, you couldn't heal in that space, right? So you traveled, you went away, right? You found, you refound yourself, you started writing, you worked, you worked in your passion within your purpose, right? And you provided value to the world so other people could do the same. Now, the topic that I see that you talked about was mentorship. What, what made you want to talk about mentorship throughout that book? Did you have a mentor in your life that impacted you or were you a mentor to someone else? What, what made you pick that topic? It was a combination of both. Um, so the audience that I had in mind when I published the book um, was young men, men in general, but certainly young men. And the reason for that is because it was through the lens of my experience, right? So I can't really relate to a woman's experience. Right, right, right. Um, I'm sure that a, a woman, I mean, there are women who have read my book and who have been able to resonate with it or been able to understand the relationships that they have with other men. Um, but the book was written with men in mind. And really when I was, when I was writing for, from a venting perspective, I was talking about different relationships that I had that impacted me from as young as, you know, 12 years old. And, um, I pulled from like literally pulled from journals that I had kept from that age. So, um, you know, like I said, I've been writing from my, you know, pretty much my whole life. So I have a journal that date back to, you know, that time. And I would just pull entries out and kind of elaborate and expand and tell the story around that. So yeah, I had a mentor and I wouldn't necessarily call him a mentor in a traditional sense, right? Like he was a um, camp counselor and um, we had kind of like developed a bond. And through that experience, we lost contact. And I perceived the losing of contact in that stage of my life as abandoning me. And so that abandonment impacted, you know, how I viewed relationships moving forward. Can I ask you a quick um, question? Yeah, sure. Do you feel like, you know, that that correlation between, you know, maybe your parents separating, you know, do you feel like you were abandoned at all? Or I don't know, I'm not sure how your relationship with both parents are still close. Do you feel like there's any correlation? Um, I think that there are aspects to it that maybe I have felt that way, um, psychologically, subconsciously, um, but not in the same way okay. I felt in that particular situation. So, you know, my father has always been present in my life. Um, me and my father have a really good relationship right now. And, and that wasn't always the case, yes, sir. but, um, I think the reason for that was, uh, misunderstanding one another okay. and, um, you know, my father was a young father. My father was like 17 years old when I was born. So as he was raising me, he was also raising himself. And, uh, there's a lot of trauma that come out of that relationship and the dynamic of, um, you know, my parents first as young people raising a child, but also as, you know, a separated couple trying to raise children. And so my grandfather really kind of stepped up (laughs) and was pivotal in helping to assist raising me and my siblings. And um, my grandfather's a huge influence on who I am today, um, who I've always been, but certainly in my messaging and my delivery and 
you know, this desire to teach and share and educate and inspire and, you know, all of that. So um, when I say that my father was present and I talk about this book, he was present physically, but I don't know that I felt um, that he was present emotionally for me. And I don't think that he knew how to be at that stage in, in our lives. And so when you talk about abandonment, I think, yes, I look for that in other people and was constantly let down, constantly hurt because nobody's going to give me that the way that my dad would. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, by the way. I just wanted to... No, you, I appreciate the question. Absolutely, absolutely. So I know you were talking about the the gentleman that you felt abandoned you when you were telling this story. I'm not sure if you yeah. remember that. So, um, yeah, so I internalized that. I mean, it was it was a tough hurt because it was the first person that I had um, developed kind of like a bond with outside of my family. First, first man that I had developed like a bond with outside of my family. And, um, you know, I just, I thought he was like the cool, like I was, this is a cool guy and like got everything going on, guys on crib. Like, you know, we, I felt like we were really close, but it was like a microsecond. I think, you know, as a young person, our perception of time is so different. Um, you know, what, might be a summer is an impactful experience to you but to somebody who's an adult like a summer is like a flash it's like oh you know that was yesterday so um you know that was a negative impact because I was just like you know we're bonding and now we're not and I'm like well what happened right like that was the question like what happened where'd this person go and then it um the book goes through different relationships like different friendships that I've had with other men or uh, well I shouldn't say men because we were, we were children but with other children who were male um that I had become bonded to whether that be through uh experiences of I don't know adolescence right um just you know learning about girls and learning about the street and learning about um uh, you know school and, and and what have you I was very sheltered so um when I started experiencing like a taste of the street, if you will, right. Like going yeah. out dancing and partying and, you know, getting involved with drinking and, and smoking and girls and all that stuff. It was a whole new world for me. And that was only allowed to happen because my parents were separated. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of distraction between them that allowed for me to kind of like get caught up in that life. And, um, Fortunately, you know, there wasn't a lot of damage done, right? Like I was, I was in danger. I didn't, you know, get anybody pregnant. I didn't get addicted to drugs or get arrested or anything like that. But, you know, those are realities that could have occurred as a result of, you know, who I was hanging out with and, you know, what we were doing during that period of time. But there was an acknowledgement there of my person, right? Like who I am is a person or, you know, being valued and, having respect and being taught things and learning things. And um, just, I think when we talk about masculinity and especially in, in this day and age, right, where this term toxic masculinity is tossed around, um, there, there needs to be more conversations around this idea that, and I use this term in the book, compassionate mentorship is, um, is demonstrated where it's not just, you have to fight and rough each other up and, you know, man up and, and be tough. And, you know, there's the acknowledgement of the emotional aspects of our existence. 
between one another that I think is important and, and healthy to uh, relationships between men or young, young men. So I talk about that a lot. And um, I'm trying to remember, I mean, I, I wrote that book a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. About, I think I end the book by talking about um, my like official mentor who ended yeah. up being my wrestling coach. I was high school, I wrestled, and um, my wrestling coach took on that role. The wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my wrestling coach took on that role to like help um, just be there for me through tough times, through good times, to encourage me, to teach me, to help me like develop discipline um, as a wrestler, but also outside of the wrestling world. And uh, we still have a relationship, very close relationship to this day. So, um, yeah, it just kind of goes through just a lot, a lot of the interactions that I had, um, particularly with men, like I said, um, and giving, I think, young men and, and older men even permission to kind of assess where they are and have more healthy relationships with one another that, um, that acknowledges the aspects of masculinity that I often not talk about the softer side of um what does and I, I use words that like um that are triggering to some people but like what does intimacy look like what does um yeah. compassion look like what does acknowledgement and emotions look like and uh it's it, just it, so what, funny why it triggers most people <laughs> say it again I said it's kind of funny how those words may trigger someone well, yeah, I mean, yeah, in this day and age, I think it's probably less triggering. But yeah. when we when you look at the demographic of black men and the trauma that we've experienced just generationally and, and historically and everything like that, like there's this expression of like we have to be hard all the time, like masculine, macho, can't show emotion, can't show affection can't show fear, can't cry. And um, when we interact with one another, it's usually expressed in that way too. Rough housing, name calling, putting each other down. And um, in the book, I kind of like create an environment where it's okay for you to uplift and um, acknowledge and you know be, be compassionate in your interactions. So uh, definitely a good book. Like I said, it's been a long time since I read it because I wrote it. Um, I feel like I'm in the book right now. Yeah. <laughs> this is the first time that, I, that I've been able to discuss it at length. And, um, I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's what this show's about, man. It's the first time for everything, man. And, you know, just, you know, speaking about, like, you know, just it's kind of talk, you know, switch topics a little bit. You know, one of the things that, you know, I attest to just, like, saving my life in a sense is, like, poetry. Even this, this podcast, this show, um, you know, Natalia, my, my, my queen, she had made a uh, thread last week recently that you've seen, and she talks about like how content has like you know, impacted our lives or saved our lives, right? So me doing this show, me writing, kind of saved my life and kept me from like in a dark, when we was in a dark moment, it kind of kept me, you know what I'm saying, kept me, you know, safe. And I remember you responded with a thread that kind of, kind of, you know, talked about how like writing or freelance writing specifically has impacted your life and saved your life. Can you talk about that a little bit, sir? Yeah, so um, I quit my job. I fired my yeah. boss. <laughs> the way that I've branded it, right? I fired my boss back in May. Fired my boss. And um, 
jumped into this world of entrepreneurship really head first. And I had an idea about what entrepreneurship looked like because I had like the structure of my business on, on the side of my corporate income, but it wasn't like a regular income. And I did not realize the stark contrast that existed between being a full-time entrepreneur and then just kind of having a side hustle. So when I was kind of thrown into it, um, not kind of when I was thrown into it, um, that I, first. <laughs> I had to figure out very quickly how to make money. And fortunately I left, um, with a financial plan, right? I had money put away. I have, you know, access to large credit lines. That's and smart. I, yeah, I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take some time to figure this out. But when that money started to exhaust, and the credit lines were starting to like get close to max. I was just like, yeah, we got to figure something out. We're going to have to go back to work. And um, I started writing. I started writing more frequently. And because of the things that I've written in the past and the um, names of the brands that I've written for, I've been approached by uh, several different you know, agencies, institutions, what have you, looking for me to write for them. And of course, get paid for it. Um, but writing has done more than just bring opportunities for me to write. Writing has also brought opportunities for me to speak. Um, writing has brought opportunities for me to deliver workshops. And, and, and certainly, it, it can be used as a case study, some of the writing that I've done for my coaching. So um, it's really just kind of an entry point for a lot of different things that I've been able to use to monetize. And again, you know, to the point that we made earlier, writing has had a direct impact on Twitter's verifying. So, you know, in the world of Twitter, I'm notable and of public interest enough that they would give me that blue check. And, you know, that just takes me into a whole new stratosphere and being able to interact with people and engage in conversations and get recognition um, in a way that didn't exist previously. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, kind of talk about what you mentioned earlier about, you know, being able to write for other brands. How were you, first of all, do you offer coaching towards how to, you know, put yourself out there, how to pitch these brands, like these different, um, these different opportunities with your freelance writing? Uh, not yet. It's something that I've thought about. I'm, I'm in the process of kind of brainstorming a course that would incorporate that. Um, I, I don't quote, consider myself by any means an expert, um, but I guess I guess I've accomplished enough to <laughs> to, uh, to go out there and, and, and certainly monetize that as a skill set. But um, I'm really focused on the financial empowerment stuff. So not taking it off the table is something that I would uh, monetize or you know talk about in the future. But, um, I've, I've definitely had kind of one-off conversations around what that strategy has looked like and, and how to get started. Yeah. Well, I'm asking for myself, so I'm definitely going to reach out to you. I, I kind of have maybe an idea, like I've done research on it myself, but I haven't executed, I should say. I haven't started the process. I'm not sure if it's like a guest posting along those lines or anything like that, but I know I definitely have to dive into it. So we'll talk about that later, man. But, oh sure. man, so absolutely, Matt. And so... TED speaker, right? Like you said, you, because you're writing, you're writing for these other brands, you've gained other opportunities to, you know, speak. Like, let's talk about the first time you were able to speak. And let's talk about, you know, being able to be a TED speaker. Like, how was that moment for you? 
Yeah, so uh, my first, I guess, official opportunity to speak came through an organization called The Black Man Can, founded by Brandon Frames. Shout out to Brandon and The Black Man Can. Uh, Brandon had a series called Building a Better Brother Summit, where he would um, take, you know, Black men speakers and, um, you know, they would volunteer their time and talk about whatever time was to young people. And so I was connected to Brandon um, by a colleague at work, reached out to him, let him know what I was working on, let him know that what I did um, in terms of publishing the book. And um, I was like, I'd love to speak, you know, and he was like, all right, cool. So he would send me out an email, let me know when he was doing what he was doing. Um, and a lot of the work that he was doing was in the New York area. So I would drive down from Connecticut to New York and uh, I would start speaking and you just kind of developing, you know, my, uh, technique around speaking around presentations around you know workshops around engaging kids that are not interested in anything that you have to say and so learning how to um navigate the distractions or acknowledge the distractions right if i'm speaking to a a group of kids who you know they all are sitting on their phone you know do you acknowledge that say you know hey i'm not going to keep moving until you guys give me your attention or do you just move past it and and pretend that it's not so I did uh, maybe two or three of those with him. And uh, I said, I need to expedite this price process, right? I don't want to just speak for free. Um, I started doing podcasts. I did a paid gig with um, a local organization um, in Mount Vernon, actually, talking about personal finance, talking about my book. And then I said, well, how do I develop credibility as a speaker rapidly, right? And I don't advise anybody to jump, you know, to try to cut cut corners, right? But <laughs> for me, I had a goal and I was like, I know that I can talk. I know, you know, I know I can speak. And um, I said, Ted, like, that's that's the recognition. People, I saw somebody do a TED talk and I said, I want to do that. Like, that's, that's yeah. going to be the thing. I so that. I uh, did a quick Google search on um, how do I give a TED talk? And I found out that TED licensed his name out to organizations across the country in the TEDx um, kind of category. And so I searched for a local TEDx and um, there was one up by me, TEDx Hartford. And I went to their website and I reached out and I'm like, hey, how do I become a part of this? And they, um, they said, well, we're not accepting applications right now, but keep checking back. Yeah. So I went to their um instagram page and their facebook page and i turned on post notifications and i said as soon as they announce that they're accepting speakers i'm going to get the notification and i'm going to apply and that's what happened uh it was probably around february they started you know putting out their notifications like we're looking for speakers apply to our tedx whatever and um i applied immediately i'm like (laughs) i'm in there i want to talk about this and uh the process is simple but complicated. The simple part of it is you tell them what your talking topic is, what your experience with speaking is, um, how is it relevant to like the theme. A lot of TEDx organizations have a theme that they're talking about. And then you might do an audition video so that they can kind of see what your speaking style is. Um, and usually a lot of people are applying for this. So there was over 100 applicants at this particular TEDx event. And I think they had to pick six people 
So I was one of six out of a hundred that were selected to talk. And yeah. uh, I just had to practice and practice and practice. Usually uh, the TED Talks, I think they have a cap of uh, 15 minutes maybe. Okay. So I had to, you know, have a talk that was kind of like a monologue, right? I'm not getting any kind of engagement from the audience where I'm delivering this topic. I'm talking, you know, long enough. So my talk wasn't quite 15 minutes. It was like nine minutes, but um, I'm talking long enough to keep them engaged, but not too long that it goes over the time limit because it'll just cut you off. Yes. And um, I went out, I practice every single day. I practice in the shower. I practice on my way to work. I practice on my way home. I practice on my lunch. Like I made sure that I was timing myself and that, you know, the pacing and the messaging and, you know, I try not to memorize the talk per se, yeah. but to memorize the points that I wanted to talk around. And um, I'm really glad that I did it that way because during the TEDx talk, I forgot my talk twice. Like I forgot everything that I that I planned twice. And if I had tried to memorize the talk, then I would have completely gotten lost. Yes. So because I memorized the bullet points around what I wanted to talk about, then I was able to rapidly recover. And I mean, you can't even really tell when you watch the talk um, that I forgot, but there were definitely two moments where I'm like, oh shoot, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, um, and the lights were all on me and, you know, the people were all like staring at me and I'm like, oh God, like, let me, let me get through this. So. <laughs> was there a lot of people in the audience? Oh yeah. There was, like well, well over a hundred people who were just kind of like, sitting there staring at you. You know what's funny? We as people, well, you know, some people, I was having a conversation with this gentleman. His name is um, Armani Talks. He has a pretty big following on Twitter. And he was talking about public speaking and how, like, you know, it's so funny because, like, say you put up a video and it gets 100 views. You're like, oh, man, that's not enough. Da, 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 da. But if you put all those people into one room mm-hmm. and you have all those, all those eyes watching you at one time, you're going to be like, damn, this is a lot of people. But it's like a disconnect, but 100 people, man. How did you feel afterwards? Oh, man, I was I was happy that it was over <laughs> <laughs> because I was so nervous. I was nervous. I was scared. I mean, I was just like, I really want to do a good job. I knew they were recording it. I knew it was going to go up on YouTube and, you know, live in infamy, right? Um, I hoped that the talk was going to go viral. Um, but, it, I, I mean... Uh, like I, there's like the four thousand between four and five thousand views up there right now. That's good. That's but um, people. I'm sure that at some point, given the notoriety that I've developed over time, the talk no, will figure it out and like, oh, Rockem gave it that, so let me go watch it. Absolutely. But um, afterwards, I felt really good because people were coming up to me and, and like congratulating me and telling me how my story impacted them and um, you know, asking questions about it. So I'm like, all right. I must have did a good job. Absolutely. And then I got to walk around saying I delivered a TED talk. So, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. At that point in your life, were you more receptive to compliments now that you changed your environment since then? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, I, was, I was definitely deep in it. Like, give me all the compliments you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Absolutely, man. And, you know, one of the questions I like to ask all of my guests when they come on this show we kind of, you kind of touched upon it earlier in the beginning of the conversation is the question is, you know, what is your definition of success? Now, Rakim, as you know, 
success, it varies depending on where you're in life, depending on your goals. It doesn't have to be monetary, right? It could be just peace of mind. It could be happiness. What's your definition of success? Yeah, so I like that you said it doesn't have to be monetary because one of the kind of like mantras, if you will, that I've been saying over and over and over again um, of late is that as much as it's about the money, it's not, right? And I've been saying that a lot to myself um, because there were days where I wasn't making any money. There were days that I'm not making any money. And there are days where I'm making a lot of money. But, but well, how do you measure success? I think uh, you measure it by impact, right? Like how many people can I impact or influence or you know, kind of instigate some kind of change in thought? When I left my job and told the whole world about it, I opened myself up to criticism. Yeah. Um, and I got a lot of both. I got, you know, people <laughs> coming onto my website and telling me how, you know, selfish it was for me to do that. And, you know, as a business owner and whatever, like they would never hire somebody like me and, you know, all kinds. Of and then I had people come to me. Why, why was it selfish again? Uh, well, they considered it selfish because, uh, you know, they were an employer and supposedly, mm. I, you know, left, let the left my team with you know kind of picking up the mess right let let left the ball kind of with them and i think the reaction that people were having to me leaving in a negative capacity was because i didn't give any notice i just said i'm out like there was no I get it. I get it. I get it. So, so, you know that was part of it but on the other end of that um i've had people reach out to me and tell me that they were going to work every day and they were getting sick. They were losing their hair and, um, you know, so stressed out. And, you know, they, they decided because they watched my, you know, talk or they gave me, uh, they, they read my article that they decided to do the same thing. And I'm like, wow, I, I gave people permission to choose them by telling my story. And so if at the end of all of this, like entrepreneurship doesn't work out for me. I'm not able to, you know, create income for myself that sustains me and I have to go back to work. Um, or, you know, God forbid, I wake up one morning and I, I step off the curb and a bus hits me, right? Like, God forbid, God forbid, absolutely. <laughs> I, I would consider what I've done up until this point to be a success because I've had a huge influence on, um, you know, so many people, probably many people that I that I've never talked to that will never tell me. Um, Absolutely. Of those. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, you know, for breaking that down, man. And, you know, I just want to say thank you in general for, you know, taking the time to you know sit here and speak with me today. It's kind of funny that, you know, originally I wanted to do this conversation on Instagram live, but, you know, clearly this conversation wasn't supposed to be on Instagram live. It was able to be yeah. more intimate setting where we can communicate where you can be raw and open up and you know and tell all these amazing stories that I know you know will change some lives like I can definitely relate to a lot of the stories that you shared today very impactful man you know I just want to say you know I wish you nothing but you know success more continued abundance I pray that you continue to influence so many more people in a positive direction and help people heal from their financial traumas and whatever other traumas they do have bro and just thank you so much for you know being my special guest today brother I appreciate it Thank you for having me and, and for creating an environment where those stories could be told.
Absolutely, man. Thank you. Of course, of course, man. You know, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to release this yet, but I will be, you know, breaking down content with it, making micro content with it. I'm going to also put this on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, all those good stuff. So when it's ready, I'll definitely share that with you, bro. Perfect. I look Absolutely. forward to it. Absolutely, again, man. Thank you again for the opportunity. All right. Thank you. Have a good one.